I wonder, do, uh, do you have a favorite day of the week? <laughs> For most people, their favorite day of the week may be the end of the week or the day off. And I certainly do enjoy my days off. But ever since I was a kid, my favorite day wasn't so much a particular day of the week. No, my favorite day was always the day whenever my mom would bake fresh bread or buns. Oh. You know, although the time and the process between, you know, the, uh, the mixing and the eating seemed so long, so many steps, uh, it was always worth the wait. Oh, and the aroma of fresh bread. Now, the smell of fresh bread still brings back great memories, and, and once in a while, I replicate it with a baking day of my own, like I did last week. I was going to try to get up really early and bake bread for you all, but uh, no, sorry, it didn't happen. <laughs> Today's story that we'll be looking at in the Gospel of John was not exactly a baking day, but it was a Day, definitely filled with a lot of fresh bread, and those who experienced it never forgot it. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and we're continuing in our series on the stories that shape us, and we've been looking at the stories in the gospel of John. And let's read John chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 to 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. But Philip answered him, Oh, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread just for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Oh, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will this go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again by a mountain to himself, to a mountain by himself. Well, if this story sounds at all familiar, it should, because all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have at least one story of Jesus feeding a multitude. Yet, while there are clear similarities between 
them all, John's account has a number of unique, distinguishing features when we compare it to the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means seen together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in many things. And so these unique elements in John, for example, uh, thanks to John, we know the source of the five loaves and two fish. John is the only one that tells us it was the small boy who saved the day. Well, and John also, he sets the scene differently, making sure that we see and hear it as far more than a miraculous meal for a hungry crowd. At the end of a long day, that's what the other Gospels emphasize. But John is wanting us to see there are clues here to something much deeper in meaning and significance, which Jesus will actually draw out in the rest of John chapter 6. And also, he tells us when it was the Jewish Passover festival was near. That was the time when they celebrated the great exodus from Egypt. And where it was, up on a mountainside, in a remote place. Does that sound like any ancient story that you know from the Old Testament? The exodus, when the Israelites came out and camped out at Mount Sinai, and and what about the bread? What it was? Bread and fish. Or he's pointing already manna and meat. Remember the Israelites without food in the wilderness and how God miraculously provided for them? John will also flag for us other echoes of that ancient salvation story as this story unfolds. But he is preparing us to catch already those echoes so that we will also grasp what Jesus is showing and telling us about himself. And so after setting the stage in, in verses 1 to 4, we are launched into the story in verse 5 with a pop quiz. Jesus has a, a pop quiz for Philip. Where shall we buy bread for these people? Now, John gives us some insider information here. It was a test, he says, because Jesus already had a plan in mind to feed the crowd. But the disciples, they have no idea what Jesus has in mind. And so they approach the problem, the challenge, from merely a human point of view. And that's why Philip does the math. Like Moses did in Numbers 11. And Philip tells Jesus how impossible it will be to provide even each of them with a, a Costco-sized sample. By the way, did you get, I got a Costco sample this week, it's back. Okay, but, you know, let alone a full meal, right? I mean, he says it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each of them just to have a bite. Now, I think we've all been here to one de degree or another, haven't we? We found ourselves staring face to face with an overwhelming need. And we haven't got a clue what we can possibly do to try to even make a dent in it, a small change. I was talking with someone recently about their friend who is going through chemotherapy treatments. And it's like, what can I do in the face of that, right? And I remember years ago when we agreed to provide a meal for a hundred hungry migrant workers a week before Christmas. And then I began to wonder after I'd said, yes, we'll do it. Uh, where and how are we going to get enough food for them all? Or like me, you watch the news 
Already back in fall, we saw first it was the refugee crisis in Afghanistan. And then suddenly we, it's displaced by a, a much larger refugee crisis in Ukraine. And then I got an email this week, urgent appeal, it said, telling me about another crisis that is unfolding in Ethiopia that isn't even making the news. It seems overwhelming. The needs of all these people and needs pull on our heartstrings, but we feel powerless, overwhelmed to do anything that will even make a small dent in that need. I think John is reminding us that while such needs are surprising and overwhelming to us, they do not look that way to God. Jesus was testing them, preparing them, his followers, to approach this need and others that they would face, not merely from a human point of view. We are not on our own. And God sees this situation and ours very differently than you and I do at any given moment. Rather than worry ourselves to death, it would be far wiser to ask the master and the host who's in charge, not us, ask if there is anything that he would like us to do. On that occasion, Jesus was testing his disciples, teaching them to approach problems with him and with his divine point of view rather than a merely human point of view and our limited human resources. And while Philip had been doing the math, Andrew had been checking on their inventory. And all he could come up with was a small boy. Not with five loaves. It's actually, in Greek, it's five small barley buns, we would say. This is the smallest, and it's the cheapest. <laughs> okay? And two small fish. You know, probably fish bait here otherwise. How far will this go among so many people? It's crazy. How far indeed? And though the disciples are overwhelmed and immobilized at the magnitude of the need, Jesus seems unfazed by it. Indeed, he begins acting like the host of a really big party. And he tells his disciples to have the people sit on the grass and be ready for dinner time. In fact, notice John's distinctive detail that there was plenty of grass in that place. It has led many to wonder, as it made me wonder, if it might not be an echo of that famous psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. As their host, Jesus took the small loaves, gave thanks to God, and had his disciples distribute to all who were seated. And I, I had to think, they must have wondered, uh, how much should we give each of them? You know, a little crumb? No. As it turned out, Jesus, Jesus wanted them to have as much as they wanted. In fact, Jesus did the same thing then with those two small fish. I wonder how long it took to feed that stadium full of people. Right? 5,000 men plus families. It was a stadium full of people. 
And I wonder what the disciples were thinking as they kept, you know, delivering, skip the dishes again and again and again. And what it was like for those being fed as the baskets of food just kept coming. And I couldn't help but think about that little boy who had given his food, who had a part in it all. Now, I don't know exactly what it was like being there when, when Jesus provided for that multitude, but I can tell you what happened, what it felt like when it came time for us to serve that hungry crowd of migrant workers Christmas dinner. God saved the day uh, through a greenhouse owner who offered to buy them as much pizza as they could eat, and God provided dessert in a way that none of us had seen coming. The night before the meal, um, we still didn't know where and whether there would be any dessert at all. And since Elaine was in charge of a Christmas concert at her school, we had to definitely focus all of our energies onto that first. And uh, after the concert, we stayed till the end of the evening to help with the cleanup until we and the principal were the only ones that were left in the building. And as we were about to leave, uh, she stopped us. And she shared with us a dilemma. It seems that a parent in school had donated cakes for her to serve after the concert. But since no one could confirm whether they were nut free or not, she had decided she could not serve them. And now she didn't know what to do with them. <laughs> Knowing I was a pastor, she wondered if I knew any people or, you know, place that they could be taken that could use them. And I... We said, how much cake are we talking about here? And she took us to the office, and she showed us several boxes of cake, except these were giant boxes of cake, boxes of beautiful white cake and beautiful chocolate cake. And uh, needless to say, Elaine and I got a feel for what it must have been like for those disciples as the next day, as we served that cake, not just one or two pieces, but at the end of it, we were still going around, no, there's more, are you sure you can't eat some more cake? And there were still leftovers. You never forget something like that. And when the people at the dinner Jesus hosted saw the sign he had performed, they began to connect some dots Dots from what he was doing, what they had just seen and experienced, to what Moses had done in a remote wilderness place long, long ago. In fact, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God said he would raise up a prophet like Moses from among their people. And he said, and I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. They were getting a link. And the links and connections between that, those ancient stories of Moses and what Jesus is doing are numerous in this chapter. Even the way John tells the story of Jesus and his disciples crossing the stormy Sea of Galilee in verses 16 and following. For example, it's an echo of how God guided his people through the Red Sea. 
You see, he was master of the chaos then, and Jesus was the master of the chaos now. And John emphasizes, and suddenly they were across this stormy sea. And he also will make the connection about how they were tested in the wilderness and how the people then put God to the test, demanding further signs from him. And the people call themselves call for a Moses-like sign in John chapter 6, verses 30 to 31. What will you do, they say? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread to eat from heaven. You see, they are not content with one free meal. They want a lifetime of free meals. But Jesus didn't come simply to provide free meals. What he had done was a sign. A sign always points beyond itself to something greater, right? The true source of the, of the manna, the bread from heaven, was God. And what God was doing now in Jesus was offering them the true bread from heaven. Remember the Samaritan woman in John 4? Like the Samaritan woman who wanted access to that special well, to that living water that Jesus said that he had that would never run dry. So too the people want the bread from heaven that Jesus says is his to give. Sir, they say in verse 34, always give us this bread. And that is when Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will, he says in verse 40, is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. But John tells us, but at this the Jews there began to grumble. Grumble, just like the Israelites did back in Moses' day, time and time again. And they repeatedly put God to the test. And so Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. And he reminds them of the words of the prophets. That what he is saying is fully in sync with what they had said. And then Jesus once again connects the dots for them from the past to the present. You said, give us bread. Well, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, Jesus says, which I give for the life of the world. But unlike the Samaritan woman in John 4 who drank deeply of the living water when Jesus opened that reality to her, when Jesus came to his own people, John tells us and now shows us. And when he offered himself the life, himself as the life found in him, his own people, his own people did not receive him. Instead, the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, Jesus is using this language, John tells us in verse 59, while teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. So he's done the miracle, and then shortly after, he is teaching. He's connecting the dots for them. In other words, he is explaining how the manna miracle that he had done and the manna story, 
that they had quoted back to him from the Old Testament ultimately pointed to him. And so too did the the Passover lamb that was at the heart of their Passover festival celebration. Remember? All of the different elements of it. The blood that was sprinkled over. And especially the sacrificial lamb that they would at that meal sacrifice, but then they would eat together and remember how God had used the blood of that sacrificial lamb to save them. Jesus is connecting all the dots. This big arrow pointing right to him. And yet they seem unable or unwilling to make the connection from the past to the present. From the sign to the Savior. From the physical bread that they had been fed with to the living bread from Jesus that could nourish souls and would nourish them not just for a lifetime, but for eternal for eternity. You know, and as Jewish people, they, they should have known and understood that the word of God, the Torah, was an incredible form of nourishment. The prophets spoke about it. Jeremiah, in chapter 15, verse 16 says, for example, When your words came, I ate them, and they were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. As commentator Jean Vanier notes, surely those who were listening to Jesus could understand that the bread that Jesus was speaking about was the nourishing bread of the word of God and the one who was the living word. Jesus was inviting them to go deeper into the significance of the miracle that he had done to see that it was more than a miracle of supplying food. God is also concerned for our well-being, and he wants us to be well, not only in body, but also in soul, our whole being. Not only to be nourished for a day, but for eternity. The people in that day wanted to make Jesus king, so that he could look after them and all their bodily needs. And what a wonderful thing it would have been to have a powerful leader like that. You know, maybe they wouldn't even have to work anymore. Retirement day has come. But Jesus wanted them to know what he himself had been taught by the Father. Back when Jesus had spent his alone time in the wilderness being tempted. Those words from Deuteronomy had just come to him with new force. People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And as I said, this, this metaphor of eating and ingesting God's word was common in their culture. But we also use it in ours. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, it was such a good book, I devoured it. Right? Just, oh, I couldn't get enough. Or, you know, yeah, I swallowed the story they were telling. Or maybe the opposite, I couldn't swallow what they said. These words help us to understand what and apply what Jesus was saying about swallowing him and his words. So what are the implications and applications? I think at least three here. One clearly is that Jesus is the bread of life. You know, the challenge both then in that day and in ours is that there are so many alternate versions of the good life that continue to be marketed and sold. But 
All of the other versions are, are superficial compared to who Jesus is and what he offers. They lack the substance, the permanence that we, we intuitively long for. Especially when our physical well-being and our lives are threatened. Threatened by disease, by disasters, by pandemics, by wars. We suddenly, we, we are desperate for permanent things. And what we need is something and someone who can nourish and sustain us forever. In all the ups and downs of life. So Jesus is saying, feast on me. Open your lives. Take me into the very center of your being and be nourished by me. You know, this kind of desperation and hunger for God. I was talking with, uh, with someone recently and uh, I was telling him I have a half sabbatical coming up in May and June. And he said, oh, you should go to Thailand. I said, why Thailand? He said, oh, I've gone there to teach for a week. And he says these, uh, some of the church leaders come over from Laos because they, they can't meet together and they, they cross the border. They get a three-day pass to come over and there's a teaching center there. And he says, from morning till night, it's Bible teaching. And he says, you know, and he says, I couldn't talk at the end of the day. And they're like, no, you have to keep going, brother. He said, but don't you need to sleep? He says, they said, it's overrated. We want more of this. We can't get enough of this. We can sleep afterwards. But we know we won't get any more Bible teaching when we go back. Wow. <laughs> that is feasting on Jesus, the bread of life, in his words, right? And as I said earlier, also, we need to remember who's in charge. Remember who's in charge. When there are needs before us that are overwhelming. Overwhelming from a human point of view and from limited human resources, absolutely. But with the Lord, our good shepherd and host, there is nothing that he cannot do. And sometimes... He produces. He, he shows up and he feeds. He provides food and supplies where there was none. And sometimes he gives us the manna of encouragement to sustain us when we thought we had given up all hope. On our own, whatever we say or do, it is small potatoes, right? It's insignificant. And yet as those, that gift from that little boy reminds us, in Jesus' hands, even the smallest and most insignificant things can make a big difference. A really big difference. And thirdly, keep following and trusting in him. Keep following and trusting in him. One of the things that will transpire over the course of this whole chapter in John 6 is that when it comes to the end of the chapter, there is a huge divide that takes place. It begins with so many people following Jesus, people who, were, who gave up their day job, earning their daily bread, and said, we'll, we'll go without a day of eating. We need to hear this Jesus. He's the real deal. And then yet by the end, Many find what Jesus is saying, that kind of commitment, it's too hard, too hard to stomach. And many of his disciples say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Who can stomach it? And from this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Prompting Jesus 
to ask his inner circle, the 12 disciples, if they too wanted to leave. We've lost a lot of followers, it seems to me, during COVID as well. And sometimes in the adversities of life. Simon Peter's response, though, that we see and hear, we he see and hear that not all is lost. Not all followers, you know, are just in it for what they can get. To whom, Lord, shall we go, Peter says, because you have the words of life, of eternal life. And we have come to believe, it has become our settled conviction that you are the Holy One of God. We've looked at the other options, and this is hard times, but there is nothing, no one else, that has the permanence and can sustain like you. Jesus is not only the Savior, he is also the sustainer. And following Jesus in adversity requires that we keep being nourished by him. And thinking about the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. And that line, give us this day our daily bread. Many interpreters think you might be handy to say, give us this day our daily manna. Jesus is talking about. And physical, yes, but also the emotional manna that we need. The relational manna. The spiritual manna that we need in the midst of adversity to sustain us when just the hope that we have in this world is not able to sustain us. We need to be rooted in the one who is the permanent one, the eternal one. And rather than pulling up stakes in hard times as many did in that day, Jesus invites us to put our stakes, our roots deeper in him in times of adversity. Give us this day our daily manna. I want to, uh, before we open up for a sharing time, I want us to pray together the Lord's Prayer. And I want us to change just one word in it, okay? Give us this day our daily manna. Just to make sure we get that connection and that that might become your prayer in the midst of this week or one that you pray for someone else who maybe is facing adversity and needs to be sustained by the ultimate one. So let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily manna and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.